And for those listening to the podcast, I am waving my hands above my head. Um, and, and jump on YouTube and subscribe and watch it there so you get the full experience. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Remind podcast. My name's David Masterton. I'm joined by the wonderful Ashley Morland. And in episode 13 today, we're talking about a topic beyond medication. Can depression and anxiety be cured? Which is a very big topic, something that I'm not familiar a lot about. So I'm really glad you're here, Ash. How are you? I'm really well. I'm excited to be here, Dave. I'm excited to deep dive into this topic today. Last week, we went down a rabbit hole. <laughs> we went down such a whopping rabbit hole that was fantastic, completely cool. unexpected, but juicy, right? Oh my gosh. So juicy. Chaos. Yes. Juicy absolutely. chaos. And where we took the conversation was in the mind versus the body and the mind versus the brain and the mind-body connection and all this kind of stuff. So where we really wanted to take this conversation was in understanding how we can better understand anxiety and depression relative to that context, relative to the understanding of the mind being different to the brain and all of those things. So I am going to play maybe the answerer. <laughs> What I'm going to be the question. I'm going to be the questioner. Should we well, just start with what even is anxiety and depression? <clears throat> yeah, well, maybe um, I think that's a great place to start. Maybe I'll give you and the listeners my two cents on mm -hmm. my experience or lack of experience with anxiety and depression. So um, for me, I have had people around me who have had um, depression that are medicated on antidepressants. I've had situations that I felt very unregulated around and for me unregulated means I'm unhappy that usually comes out in frustration and anger and things being put in my way to force me to slow down which everyone's against me um, and but I've never been in a constant state of that so I, I, kid, I consider myself to be lucky in that respect and during this time as well, in my previous understanding before I started on this journey, I never thought myself as an anxious guy. I never thought mm -hmm. of myself as anxiety, but I'd get moody sometimes or I'd get excited sometimes. But I can definitely now feel within my body sometimes when there's anxiety. So um, I think from a, a question point of view, it's sort of like my biggest question is when does depression start versus I'm going through a shitty part of my life. Mm -hmm. Like where's, where's kind of in, in, in your the mind. Cuddle. Yeah. It's sort of like yeah. I can over to you. Yeah. Where does it start? Look, I'm going to answer based off the psychological model, right? So mm -hmm. There's this thing called the DSM. It stands for the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. And the DSM is the handbook. It's like the rule book that is used by healthcare professionals across the board to diagnose. So there's criteria, right? 
And I want to preface this by saying I am not a registered medical professional. My expertise is in um, PhD, so research-based and the application of research. Uh, so I can't diagnose people, but the reason that it's so important to understand this is that it can be both validating and invalidating. So to give you an example, to meet the diagnostic criteria for depression, according to this DSM, someone has to experience a combination of a whole bunch of symptoms. Like there's a list of things and that has to last at least two weeks for most of the day, almost every day. So to give you an example, um, some things on that list, they've got depressed mood. So that means feeling sad, empty or down most of the time. Mm -hmm. There's a loss of interest or pleasure. So there's a significant decrease in interest and pleasure, particularly in activities that you used to enjoy. Um, significant weight loss or weight gain. And that can also, uh, to tick that off in the DSM, it can even include changes to appetite. There's sleep disturbances. So you've got insomnia, difficulty sleeping, hypersomnia, which is excessive sleeping, like you're just so tired that you sleep all the time. Um, there's restlessness and slowed movements. There's fatigue, like loss of energy. There's feelings of worthlessness, excessive guilt, diminished ability to um, think. So cognitive function starts to shut down, difficulty to concentrate, recurring thoughts of death or suicide. So if that's the list and you need to experience a combination of things on that list, you have to tick multiple boxes on that list for at least two weeks, for most of the day, nearly every day, you are diagnostically, clinically depressed as opposed to I'm feeling really sad and mm. um, yeah. So from a clinical perspective and we're talking diagnostics, that's the cutoff. The problem with that is you can have people who are experiencing deep sadness and they might be experiencing symptoms that are actually drastically impacting their life, but they don't meet the diagnostic criteria. And so that's where it can be invalidating for people where, and this is really common for things like ADHD, ADHD, mm has requirements so you have to tick these boxes you have to meet these criteria but for someone who's drastically impacted and experiences some of the symptoms of adhd they may not meet the diagnostic criteria but because they don't get diagnosed it invalidates the aspects of the criteria that they do experience and do resonate with which are very real it's impacting so their like maybe frustration like I, I talked about before in my experience where i've had an episode for quite a while. Yes, I was I was stuck at home. I was looking for jobs. I wasn't getting jobs. So I had to move. I'd come off a fairly significant operation um, that you know put my you know had internal bleeding afterwards, which rendered me in the ICU after losing four liters of blood. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought the whole world was against me. And but it was intense anger, intense rage. It was. Um, you know, just the, yes, there was some withdrawal, but there was just an outward aggression against it as opposed to just fawning yeah. from it all. Um, so would you sort of say that, is that maybe something that you're sort of talking about um, that could have been part of it or? Um, 
Look, potentially, and I think it raises a really good point. The point being that a label, receiving a diagnosis is merely a label. It just says you do these things this often or you experience Mm. these things this often. But regardless of whether you have a label or not, outward rage and suppression of emotion and experiencing deep sadness and all those things are a problem, right? We don't, they are hindering us from having a healthy, functional, productive life. So Mm. as a researcher, I used to read a lot of research in this field and also particularly in the cognitive health, um, health field and mental health. And it used to irritate me that there were these hard cutoffs And when there are hard cutoffs, even in statistics, it means that someone can be very close to that hard cutoff, but not make it. Right. It's sort of like you're a kid standing in line for the ride. Yes. And it says you need to be this tall to get it. And you're like a centimetre centimetre off. It's like, sorry, mate, you're close. But instead of missing out on the ride, it's like you're missing out on some understanding, the support. label, the, the, the yep. support, the medication. Support, validation. The, validation. And because you, yep. you didn't meet the diagnostic criteria, people then feel like, well, it's not real. You're making it up. And that's a really mm. common experience. And I can't stress how much this happens, particularly for ADHD, um, mainly because people are very commonly diagnosed late in life in ADHD because it requires... Um, a very conscious and aware and observant parent to mm. be able to have those things um, diagnosed, pick up on them and then diagnose well, them. Especially with, with boys, it usually comes out as hyperactivity. That's a very clear, they're more disruptive, right? But well, with- I would actually argue the opposite. It's more likely to be females that are missed in their diagnoses of ADHD. Oh, no, no. So what I'm saying is very, very easy to diagnose. Oh, a boy. Yes. Yeah, it's very sorry. hard to diagnose uh, a yeah. girl because they're not that hyperactive. I'm not, and I've yeah. seen it hyperactive girls, but it's they're more, you know, they don't cause as much trouble. They're not as, you know, and so, yes, you're, you're right. Um, having an ADHD boy myself, and I've got the lookout for maybe my daughter has it because um, of other things that I got told about how those symptoms can manifest being yes. sort of forgetfulness and you know emotive but she's not as much energized as her brother which is mm-hmm. a very big signal hey <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely and i mean then we have the conversation of anxiety which will probably be the basis of most of what we'll talk about today mm. the in the dsm there's different types of anxiety disorders so there's like generalized anxiety disorder there's panic disorder there's social anxiety disorder there's um phobia like really specific phobias like it might be dogs or whatever um there's separation anxiety maybe maybe, maybe maybe spiders spiders yeah, come to mind. spiders <laughs> my beautiful husband um (laughs) but there are so many different subtypes then of anxiety Mm. and my question became if the label doesn't help them why do we obsess over the label because there are some people who experience the issues but don't meet the criteria to get the label there are some people who 
experience the issues and get the label, but the label itself doesn't actually help the issues. Do you, mm. do you know what I mean? And, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And so as a neurophysiologist, I touched on this last week, I wanted the answer to be the brain. And the still taught in psychology today is the biochemistry of mental health disorders. So you'll hear things about Which is the, the brain. Things. Yes, yeah. the biochemistry, the things that can be measured in the physical sense, that is a neurological approach and a biochemical approach to mental health. And that's the approach that's taken. It's very pharmacologically based. So what that means is that generally speaking, the approach will be medication and mm -hmm. talk therapy. Now, which is all very brain focused, very well, kind of, yes. Okay. Yes. So the so chemicals would be brain, definitely, definitely yes. brain focused. The talk therapy, if we're separating, and again, from last week's episode, the mind is separate from the brain mm -hmm. is, are we talking about the talk therapy works on the mind? To an extent? Yes. So say CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, it's about the way that we think and mm. the way that we perceive things. So there are a whole bunch of like cognitive distortions, for instance, where we look at something and see it a certain way, but in reality, it's this different way because we overlay the cognitive distortion in our perception from our mind. The problem is, and this is where, this is really what drove my entire career towards the therapy that I do now that I that I see clients with. I wanted the answer so badly to be the brain. The problem is, is I, I personally had a whole bucket full of labels. I'd had all these labels and I reached a point of frustration. I had used medications. I had been in counseling and therapy for most of my life, but I wasn't more functional. I wasn't more functional. Okay. And like, I sort of thought if I took my car, if I had a flat tire and I took my car to the mechanic every week for 20 years and I still had a flat tire, there'd be something wrong. Mm. So. Yeah, going to the wrong mechanic. <laughs> <laughs> or the approach that that mechanic is using is not mm. correct. So. This really led me down this rabbit hole to understand mental health. And one day I just typed in define mental. Like what even is, if I'm going to understand mental health more, what is mental health? Let's start with the definition of mental. Do you know the definition of mental? I'm about to find out. <laughs> <laughs> it means relating to the mind. So okay. here we have a mental health crisis all around the world. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to overcome it via the brain because the misunderstanding in the medical community is that the brain and the mind are the same thing and they are not. Yeah. Or the mind lives in the brain, right? Yeah. It's sort of like they're, they're so inseparable. It's not funny. Yeah. And yes, like you, you need a brain to function, to move a mouth, to communicate, to have all that, but you don't need a brain to have energy intention and, and, you know, love right love energy well, partly like, but it the, the require the brain requires an instruction in order to know 
to move the mouth or in order to know to increase the heart rate because someone didn't respond to our text message mm. or because we just got called into our boss's office. There's got to be input <clears throat> into Which that. My previous version of myself would have said, well, that also lives in the brain. It's just yeah. a different area of the brain. In my previous version of myself, I was my brain. Mm. It was, that was my identity is, is all in there. So when previous people try- Previous version as of a week ago? <laughs> oh no, previous version as of maybe two years ago. Okay. Um, but trying to get to, how did I get to that? My, the question wasn't, where is myself? The, 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 the question was, why do I feel so miserable? What am I doing wrong? What do I need to change? And that started to get to understand myself and where my brain fits in. I had to start with my heart. I yes. had to start with vulnerability. And so when people look at this mental health crisis, it's because they are a bit like the mechanic. Because if there's a knock every time you drive, is it the engine? Is it the tires? Is it the fact that you, you got someone in the passenger seat opening and closing the door all the time? Mm -hmm. And what so, happens if you went to mechanic school and they said, when this knock happens, you fix that. But the mechanic school had it wrong. And so you keep trying to fix that the same way every time the knock happens and you keep the knock. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But uh, and I guess where a lot of people are getting really frustrated is the mind is the brain. Snap out of it or take drugs because you're chemically imbalanced. Mm -hmm. If you right. change the brain, you'll change your life. Yep, to feel happy, right? Because I think everyone's goal is to feel good. It's to mm -hmm. feel happy, it's to feel joy, at no matter what it is, but they get carried away with buying this thing's gonna get me joy, having this holiday is gonna get me joy. If I could just change my job, if I could just be in a relationship with this person, if I could just get out of this relationship yeah. with this person. You know, all of these things are gonna make me happy, you know, and a lot of those things can be true, but it's really what they're looking for is that happiness. And so I look at some of these, you know, sort of like when I talk about depression, People can feel depressed. And I guess the length of time when you're in a constant state of that, for me, is if you're in it for a really long time, that's depression, no matter how you mm -hmm. got there. Mm -hmm. But for me, a lot of it is, well, what is making me depressed? Well, if something's making me depressed, there's something within me that wants different. There's something within me that wants more of this, or there's something within me that wants less of this. And guess what? There is something that I'm actively doing to stop that, which means there's a fear, there's a trigger, there's a trauma that says, I can't do that because duh. Yeah. I have to wait until uh, for this, this person can't or won't or whatever. It's all sitting out there. So when I looked at depression before, it was a simple matter of if there was an issue, what's the key to unlocking it? And again, I haven't felt the crippling effects of feeling helpless. That's, that's never anything, that's not one sensation I've had in my life. So I'm not downplaying the people that do genuinely feel that. Mm. And so I guess when people start reaching out and start to think, well, why do I feel this way? How do we cure it? Yeah, well, well let's have the conversation. Mm, so absolutely. I think I think that's the hard thing. So back to my car analogy, 
what I realized in my research was they were trying to fix the flat tire by changing the windscreen. And what mm. I mean by that is that, yes, one of the things that actually got me really interested in this and, and pondering it was that, first of all, there's such thing as a placebo effect where if you just believe that something is going to do something, it happens. And this is so rep, uh, reproducible in research. Um, and another was when I was doing my PhD in neuroplasticity, one of my colleagues was doing his PhD in neuroplasticity, but he was looking at um, visualization. And so basically what that meant is he got people to imagine doing something. And in response to the imagining of doing that thing, the entire brain lit up as if he was doing the thing. Except no movement. It didn't know the difference. No. And so our brain doesn't know the difference between imagined or real. So that's oh. one really. So literally, he zapped brains and measured, he got people to really, so it was a bicep task. He got people mm. to really do a bicep curl with an actual weight. And then he mm -hmm. got people to imagine doing a bicep curl with no weight. They did, didn't even like do anything. And the people who imagined doing the task had the exact same brain adaptations as the people who actually did the task. Obviously minus the actual impulses running from the brain down to the arm. Yeah. So the, yeah. well, yeah, I don't know where the literature's up to on that, but actually the, the arm itself didn't move. So the movement yeah. aspect wasn't there. Um, and then, the, well, there's so much more we could go into with that, but I'm going to leave with it the, there. With that, yeah. It's, it's, it's a, the proof of principle, right? Mm. So what that then means is that if we just think about something and the brain is reacting to that input of imagination or thought, I started to think, well, what if we used our imagination to induce neuroplasticity into the emotional and stress centers of the brain. What if? And that's basically the process of what I do with my clients now, where mm. <clears throat> if you're taking a medication approach to overcoming anxiety, to overcoming depression, to overcoming these things, the reality is you're depressed for a reason. You're depressed because something happened, some, some aspect in your mind. It might be something as simple as... Um, or let's say anxiety might be something as simple as they didn't respond to my text message, which our mind perceives as a threat, which gives the input to the brain to activate the stress centers. And therefore, our heart rate increases, our chest feels tight, our palms are sweaty, our you know respiratory rate increases, and we get all mm. the physical sensations of anxiety. We get the racing mind, mm. we get all this stuff, except... We've only imagined the threat. The threat of not receiving a response to a text message is not real. Well, the no not, receive, not receiving the text message is real, but what that actually represents is what we're exactly. now imagining. Yeah. So it's the perception of threat. Yes, the, the, the reality is no text message has come, but our mind is perceiving that overlaying a story of what that means. A and if possibility. that story yeah. feels threatening 
And by threatening, mm. it's usually fear of rejection, fear of abandonment, fear of missing out, fear of not being good enough, fear of all the fears. Mm. So that is stored in our mind because of previous data where we got hurt, where we were rejected, where we were abandoned, where we spoke up and got told that we were too loud, whatever it might have been. If that data is stored in our mind, it is perceiving circumstances and situations as a threat which are not threatening. They're happening, but they're not actually a threat to us. And so the imagined threat tells the brain to activate the stress centers and activate the emotion centers and activate all of that stuff which results in a physical response in the body. But what happens then if we retrain the mind and replace the stories so that in those circumstances, it can correctly perceive safety? The exact Mm. same circumstance and the exact same situation no longer activates the stress centres of our brain. The input from the mind activates our safety centers it activates and it sends the information forward to the front part of our brain now if we are having um, issues with memory issues with cognitive function this is particularly important for adhd because adhd is chronic stress responses chronic stress Mm. responses being activated partly because of the overlay of the mind the mind is perceiving now There can be physiological issues with that, as in our stress centres can be super sensitive, so it will react to very, very, very small level threats, constantly searching. But it can be mental as well because of the things that are stored in the mind. Wow. I jumped a lot. (laughs) I know that's (laughs) All right, so... So, yes, you have. Let me just sort of go go back just, um, just to... The biggest thing for me is that the the mind doesn't necessarily live in the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, so if the intention or the thought, let's just say for an example, sits outside of your physical body, right? Let's just assume nothing within there, you're sort of getting dripped on with some thoughts, with some ideas, with some, you know, and we'll say that's kind of the, 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 the mind and the mind sort of, sort of running. The brain is then reacting to what's happening with the mind. And for those listening to the podcast, I am waving my hands above my head. Um, and jump and, on YouTube and subscribe and watch it there so you get the full experience. <laughs> well, shabang. <laughs> However, when we have the diagnosis of de- depression, when we talk about support mechanisms, antidepressants is seen as a leading support tool as well as talk therapy, right? So when we're using the, the medication, it's helping our reaction to the, the mind. Yes. Impacting onto the brain. Because yes. we're, we're, we're sort of saying they're, they're, at this point in time, two separate things. And when we use talk therapy, we are trying to somehow either rationalize or use logic to somehow unpack or decode why 
the mind starts running or where the story's coming from or where mm. the trauma is. And I'm going to go one step further, which I'm not sure you've mentioned or not, but the traumas that get activated aren't necessarily in the mind, they're actually stored in the body. Yes, so, correct. You've joined the dots. And so I love that because what you've done is you've said the brain chemistry medication in the absence of the mind and the body work, all it's doing is it's turning the temperature down. It's, it's going, numbing. okay, the mind is still screaming mm. at a 10 out of 10. It's just that the brain is not reacting to that as much now. Mm. And if the brain is not reacting to that as much now, the output from the brain to the body is not as much. So our physical symptoms start to feel a bit better. The problem is, is that you can't mess with one part of the brain without having an impact somewhere else in the brain. So most medications will have side effects. Most medication, the most common side effect is absolute zero sex drive. Gotcha. Now try establishing and maintaining a healthy, connected relationship with someone when you're on a medication that tanks your sex drive. I have seen relationships break up over lack of sex drive because people haven't had sex in years and years and years because they have no mm. sex drive because of medications. Um, it's the number one reason that people, when they say to me, uh, I just want to come off. Actually, no, it's probably the second reason. The first is that the problem is, is it downregulates the brain's response to everything. So it doesn't just it doesn't just numb out the bad feelings. It doesn't just numb out the experiences in the body of anxiety and the experiences in the body of sadness and grief. It numbs out the experiences in the body of joy. It numbs out the experiences in the body of excitement and love and connection. So it's taking out the the the, the highs and the lows, yes. sort of bringing it, it in, in the middle. Yep, which is fantastic because if you're experiencing such a low low that you can't cope and you're contemplating ending your life. Medication is so important because oh, it is your support. lifeline. For, for sure. But psychiatric yeah. medications were never designed to be in isolation. They weren't designed to be a, a long-term therapy. They were designed to mm. be an adjunct therapy to other psycho, well, psychological interventions. So the number one reason that people come to me is when they'll say, I have been on medication and I don't want to be on it anymore because it makes me numb. And I'll have mm. people say, I know that I love my kids, but I have no idea what that feels like. Wow. The second reason is sex drive and behavioral sort of things, side effects. So, Because it's important to have a connection in a relationship. And I do understand that there has to be ebbs and flows. Like you have to be understanding compassion if your partner's going through something and using a tool like medication to be able to have some capacity to work through what the mind's going through to unpack the traumas that are stored in the body and if it's sort of you've come through many many years or just been through some horrific episodes where that's required you know you need to have that compassion for your partner to allow that space for, yeah. for that to happen. I guess what you're talking about is when that becomes the, the, the pills or the medications taken essentially in isolation, 
no other work is happening and then therefore there's potentially no daylight at the end of the tunnel to coming off those and therefore during the whole time the partner's there not feeling connected not feeling together yeah because if you're feeling numb how do if you can't if you're feeling numb how how are you feeling about your partner Mm, or are you just are you just coexisting are you roommates are you just co-parenting under the same roof because for me the the definition of a healthy relationship has all of those things in it including the intimacy not just sex intimacy yeah Um, which is emotional closeness but if you've had to numb all of your emotional experience in the body mm. the connection is so impaired which is why people say i feel like we're just roommates i feel like we're just coexisting we've lost our spark is a really common one we've grown apart this can be a really common thing. And I'm this actually, we can do this. We can block out our body and dissociate from our body as a stress response, even without medication. But medication, this is a common outcome. If you long term. You just caught the ADHD part of me. You said disassociation. I'm like, we have to do an episode on that. Oh Let's my God. do an episode on dissociation. <laughs> Ah, not, yeah. <laughs> not not today, but because this one this one's super important. So yeah. the the one the, the the main headline that we're sort of talking about here is can depression and anxiety be cured through uh, medication? What I'm guessing at the answer is no. It can't. That by itself, taking it taking a happy tablet will not fix it. It is part of a multi step process. Is what Potentially. I'm sort of... It doesn't have to be, though. Okay. So it doesn't have to be. You don't have to if it's not indicated for you. If you have another approach, like I'll, uh, for every client that says, I'm coming to you because I want to come off medication, there's probably five or six other clients who say, I'm coming to you because I was told my only option was medication and I don't want to go on it for these reasons. Oh, right. So, okay. <laughs> I wasn't aware of this. So I've heard of, you know, that a lot of people as soon, you know, you go to a doctor and again, I haven't been through it. I'm not trying to trivialize it. However, I'm trying to simplify it without going into the nuanced emotional side. You go to a doctor, you sit down, I'm having these things. Okay, right. Um, Here's a checklist. Have you, have you, do you, are you, okay. It seems like you might be clinically depressed. Here's a prescription. Go get your, your tablets. And I'm hearing a lot more people are on that. And I'm not even entirely sure that, I mean, it's all subjective. You know, if you sit down with in front of a G, GP and sort of say, well, have you, are you... I mean, the doctor's not going to call you a liar. They're not going to ask necessarily for in-detailed evidence. Um, so is it? Is, are we really at that point right now that we're actually only seeing medication or we're coming through a phase where only medication was the answer for depression? I think that we are coming through that from what I observe yeah. because... Yeah. There's been, especially over the last few years, there's been a lot of unrest and distrust in the medical establishment. 
And the interesting thing about that for me, like I, I see a doctor, I go to doctors, I get mm. the opinion of doctors for medical issues, including mental health. I think that's important. They're an important mm. stakeholder in your overall holistic care, but there shouldn't be your only Absolutely. care provider. Absolutely. And agree. something that a lot of people don't understand is if you get a mental health plan. So in Australia, we have these things called mental health plans. So mm. if you're struggling with your mental health, the number one advice you go on any you know online forum you go on any discussion forum and or discussion section of a facebook post and the number one advice people will give you is go and get a mental health plan mm. the thing that most people don't understand is to have a mental health plan the doctor has to write a diagnosis on there so they'll go through the checklist they will write a diagnosis that diagnosis on your mental health plan goes on your medical record. If you ah. have it on your medical record, it becomes a formal medical condition, which means that down the track, if you have a, um, I don't know, like let's say you're ex you've experienced a, an incident in your workplace and mm -hmm. that incident has brought up, has that incident has caused severe anxiety or burnout. If you had a mental health plan back there that said you are diagnosed with anxiety, they don't have to pay out. Work cover can get out of it because it's a pre-existing pre medical condition. It's like all insurance oh. policies. If you have a pre-existing condition, they don't have to cover you for that condition because you already had it. Does that make sense? Gotcha. Yeah, yeah, so, it, it does, so, it does. And I if guess. you think that I'm making this up, jump online, look at some of the lawyer websites, do some research on this because mm. this is happening. It's happened to people that I'm very close to where their whole medical history has been used against them because they've had mental health plans in the past. So doctors will not explain that and that's a real problem because not only they go, you, you go and you say, I'm experiencing these issues and they'll say, let's do this checklist. Here's a mental health plan and a prescription. It's all they know. They're not taught okay. anything else. What I'm explaining, what I've explained in the mind-body stuff is not taught at med school. It's not taught in a psychology degree. Okay, so let's, 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 maybe, oof, let's maybe talk about what is the difference between the obviously we understand the the medication part of it then we've got the the talk therapy part which are the two things that are commonly used mm -hmm. as weapons within sort of mental health what we're talking about or what you're talking about is understanding the trauma understanding the nervous system those type of things correct me if i'm if i'm wrong how is that different your technique to mm. what we've just talked about yeah it's massive that's such a massive question talk-based therapy is the equivalent like i said earlier of changing the windscreen to try and fix the tire talk-based therapy is called cognitive behavioral therapy now cognition activates or re relies on the front part of the brain and the front part of the brain in order to be active relies on information getting past let's say the gatekeepers of our stress centers of our brain that's why when um, panic strikes we lose our decision making capabilities we lose our cognitive capacity our, our cognition and our executive function tanks in those moments and so 
that plays a big role in awareness. We need to have awareness of things in order to be able to change them. If we don't know what is happening in our unconscious mind, we can't do anything to change it consciously. So cognitive and conscious kind of go hand in hand to an extent because there's awareness and perception. So based off what we do and the modalities that um, that I have been trained in, but also I've developed my own over time, is based off the understanding of by using the power of our imagination, we can activate completely different brain regions, which shuts off the stress centers of the brain, activates our whole spectrum of solution um, awareness, and we can resolve the problems stored at the body level, not just at the mind level. So, so it's, people, it's, it's connecting the, it's getting the brain to actually connect to the trauma stored in, in the, the body, body. to yes. uh, allow it to come out. So while it doesn't, it's not all stored in the the brain or necessarily the, the mind, we actually need them all working in unison. Yes, which is why we to, call it alignment. To, so then mind, pro to process it out. Exactly. So kind of what happens is we need to have awareness of the sensations in our body first. Once we have awareness of the sensations in our body, we can then start to explore, and explore is a really important term. I use that intentionally because explore means we are not overlaying an assumption. There's no story. So by exploring with curiosity, what is this feeling in my body and what is it bringing up for me? Then we start to gain awareness. We start to gain awareness of the underlying traumas stored at a cellular level. When we have awareness, we can then use techniques and processes to resolve the story, to resolve the trauma at the body level, which then means the next time we think about that thing, no response in the body, no trauma response. And a perfect example um, in Rise and Thrive at the moment, we have had someone who had an experience where they saw someone that was extremely triggering to them previously. The last time they had seen them, they felt such a deep emotion and rage that came up. After this work, which is actually really quick, they've seen this person and felt completely emotionally neutral and were present in their body. So their cognitive function remained online. They were able to respond instead of react that reactive like <gasps> feeling and that's all done through awareness body up and then mind well mind into yeah, the brain down well we'll say we'll say mind down if we sort of go the yeah. one two three one at the top being the mind the brains in the middle and the body's there because i was just about to say the body it's not just the more it's it, it, what you're saying is the mind is not the only thing that affects the brain when you're saying body up it means that if something comes in through the brain that we're looking seeing perceiving and experience mm -hmm. if it triggers an emotion or a trauma within our body that can actually create pressure or a reaction back up onto Lower the brain information up. Exactly. which then puts it into its own survival like fight or flight whatever it is and then from there the brain 
can then communicate to the mind and the mind sort of goes, oh, we're panicking now because of this kind of thing. Why am I feeling that way? Maybe this is not good enough. I thought I dealt with this, da 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 oh. Speaking about injustices, I remember last week when that, and you start piling <laughs> on more shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and, and so they, yeah, and that's why working on one alone is not the answer. Yeah. Allowing all three of them and, geez, unless I know when I started doing the work, I had to start working first and foremost on my body. Yeah. Because when someone says, Oh, sorry, when you say you have to become aware of the sensations in your body. It's like, well, I know I can scratch my head. I feel that mm -hmm. I can push my, my leg. I know that. But it's nice it's knowing that I'm in a situation and instead of not feeling right or feeling tense, you're giving yourself time or being curious as to what actually am I feeling? Actually, mm -hmm. I'm feeling something sort of just in my rib cage, like they are, will be physical manifestations yeah, of something. Data. It becomes yes. data, not a story. <clears throat> and then you start to become aware, okay, I'm actually feeling a sensation about this. Like I'm getting really anxious and I'm feeling something somewhere in my body. I used to just put it down to coincidence, like oh, it's something digestive. It's something this, it's something that. Yes. Now just being aware of it and going, oh, okay, there's something there. I wonder, oh. I'm now being inquisitive about all of this and it's giving me space to sort of go exactly what you're saying. It's not that something's wrong. I'm being told something mm -hmm. because that trauma doesn't actually care whether it's here or not. It's here to protect us until it's needed and it'll happily walk out once it realizes it's not needed anymore. Yeah. The problem and is that our mind is mostly developed in our first seven years of life, purely from a brain development perspective we're having new experiences in our first sort of seven or so years of life based upon brain development. Our mind is an emerging property of the experiences that we have and how we interpret them. So mm. if we have an interpretation of something in our early life and that becomes hardwired into our brain and documented in our mind as truth, well, then that's a deception. It's not true. But mm. that truth will be overlaid in every experience that we have. And this is the very thing that explains why people have the same repetitive stories play out in their lives. So you might have a story that no one understands me or you mm. might have a story that nothing I do is good enough. And you will always be searching for evidence in the environment completely unconsciously to prove that story right but the mere existence of the story is what's causing our pain, not the stuff that's happening around us. Because if we didn't have that story, the stuff wouldn't impact us. Yeah, well, it's like sort of going, the world's against me, right? Um, or something like that. I only look for those things that reinforce that story, even exactly. though it's not there. So anytime I come across something, and I'm still aware of it, even in my conversations, when someone says something, there's always that, are you saying this because you mean that? And I'm still working on that. Oh, if I come at it with a, you know, a bit more of a broad sense that it's not, I don't have to fight for everything. Mm. Then the, yeah. everyone doesn't necessarily have an angle. Then I'll react differently. Yeah. I'll give you an example. My son 
started at a new school and this school is great. <laughs> it is genuinely a great school. Um, anyway, he was feeling quite uh, annoyed at his teachers and he kept saying, oh, my teachers are terrible and I don't like my teachers and all this sort of stuff. And I said to him, why? And he said, well, because they make me do my work. <laughs> the school that we had come from previously had just wiped their hands clean of him and said, nah, oh. we don't have the capacity to teach him in the way he needs to be taught in order to learn. So they let him lay on the ground and read books, whatever he wanted to read basically for the whole day. Mm. So at the new school, they have the resources and the facilities to be able to support him in his learning. And so laying on the ground reading for the whole day wasn't an option. It was going to be, this is what we're learning today and we're going to support you to learn it. And so he was really annoyed about that and was seeing that that was a bad thing. And the story that he was telling himself is, this is the worst school ever and my teachers hate me and all this sort of stuff. And instead of, here's another, here's a little tip. If you tell someone something, their brain is either going to reject the information or take on the information. The problem is we have a confirmation mm. bias, which means we will only take on information that supports what we're experiencing or what the way we see things. We will reject everything else. So if I sat there and said, oh, sweetheart, no, your teachers are only doing that because they care about your learning and they love you and they're great teachers. That is not confirming his bias, which means he rejects it. So the approach is ask questions, get curious, invite him to be, to find his own solution. So I said, oh, I'm sorry that you feel that way, mate. I'm wondering if you had a teacher who really didn't care about your learning, I wonder what that would look like. And he goes, oh, she'd probably go, I don't know, just go shopping or something while in class time. And I said, yeah. Maybe that's what it would look like. I wonder if it would look like anything else. What am I doing? I mm. am inviting him to use his imagination, which activates different brain pathways. And so eventually I said, yeah. So if it didn't mean that your teachers hated you and didn't care about you when they were asking you to do your work, I wonder what else it could mean. And he's gone, maybe it means that they care about my learning. And I said, maybe it does. And his whole attitude towards school changed. Which is an amazing story. And it just goes to show, because one thing I did think about earlier when we we're talking about talk therapy, there is a place for it. There Absolutely. is a place, there's a place for processing. And there's a place exactly, for education. There's a place for yep. talk therapy. There's a place for all of it. And like exactly what you were saying. And it's not, it's not sort of talk therapy like, I just need a referee who's right who's wrong mm -hmm. it's it's more going to be about okay what if what does this look like you know inviting that along without hitting that hard gate of um you should be okay well at least you're not going through this or what or whatever it is. So yes. that confirmation bias, which I think is super important because a lot of processing that people do find rather, you know, essential is 
processing with someone, talking it out, getting connection, all of those things. The problem with that and where this comes about, have you ever had someone seeing a therapist who says we weren't a good match because they wouldn't agree with with them? Ah, And so people will therapist shop. This is something really common. People will therapist shop because they want someone who agrees with them and sympathizes with them because it gives them it gives them connection. It makes them feel mm. seen. It makes them feel heard, and it gives them massive significance. Okay. Whereas if someone's not in agreement with you, this is so common in couples. <laughs> when they're looking for a couples therapist, they just want someone who will take their side because there's confirmation bias, <clears throat> but. If the therapist is actually just making you feel seen and heard by allowing you to stay in your problem, your therapist is complicit in your pain, in your suffering. Hmm. There's, there's, wow. a, there's an element for it, but it's our job to support you to actually see the solutions, not the problem. And if I jump down into the problem with you and keep help you to stay there and all we're doing is rehashing problems and rehashing problems, then it's not actually activating any other part of your brain other than making the ski slope of the problem pathway deeper Deeper. and deeper and deeper and deeper. (laughs) Gotcha. And I guess what what you're talking about with the ski slope is the the analogy that the more you revisit a thought, a emotion, a trauma or something that's amazing like a, a gratitude, it's like um, there's, a, there's fresh snow on the mountain and one skier goes down one path. And that's a thought, that's a experience, something like that. The more you, go, you revisit it, you, as you're saying, you're compacting the snow and there's like this trough that comes in so anytime any skier wants to go any other way they sort of get drawn in to that one sort of slope so if that's that constant i'm not good enough or everyone's against me and all of that anytime you try and get a slight variance away from that left or right you'll start to dive into it i guess is because i've heard that analogy before and i, and I, and I love exactly it exactly right it's it's the neurological version of if, if you don't use it, you lose it. Mm. And that's so powerful. So I I know we've covered a lot and I really made an effort to keep this as simple as possible without using brain terminology, without going into neuroanatomy or anything like that, because my hope is that people can understand the mechanics at a basic level of the things that are driving your body responses and the things that are driving your emotional reactions to to circumstances and situations. And my hope for that is there was a time in my life where I felt completely trapped, where I felt I was, I had been tried all the medications. I had been in therapy for 20 years. I, and I still felt like I can't do this anymore. And so my only option was another solution, like a real solution or literally tap out from life so Mm -hmm. my hope is that this conversation this discussion just gets people thinking differently about their approaches to mental health what mental health actually means what their experience regardless of any label regardless of a diagnosis your experience is valid and if that experience is anything less than productive and functional and healthy and and safe and resilient then we can work on that. 
You don't need a diagnosis in order to be able to be better. You don't need um, anything other than a willingness to do what it takes to be better, to feel better, to experience better, to relate with and to others better. Mm. So hopefully that helps. Absolutely. And I think for, for, for me, and I hope it helps other people as well, but sort of knowing that if you're to separate the mind out of the brain, you've got the mind, which you need to work on these parts, talk therapy, slowing it down. The brain itself is what actually controls the meat suit that we are in. right? Yes. And then we've got these um, traumas or we'll call them fast acting programs, which are inside mm -hmm. the body. Go back to last week's episode if you want to learn more about that. That actually don't, that actually, if it, if your brain picks up something, it doesn't need to think about it to react because it's got a, pro, a very quick, Automatic. rapid, that can just go and they can be great and they can also be quite terrible. Yeah. And so you're dealing with those kind of three things and there are some free resources like if if this resonates then you can reach out to to ash reach out to us at the remind institute um or just start looking at continue looking at youtube look at some of our previous episodes start to unpack some of these things might sort of work am i displaying things about perfectionism or people pleasing and then be curious go on that little journey and then keep on looking up different things on youtube or google because you'll be able to find support out there. And so, um, so yeah. much. This is, this is the biggest emerging field and it all comes down to nervous system dysregulation and mind body wellness. If you search those few things, trauma informed care, all of those things, you're going to find so much information, so many helpful resources. As Dave mentioned, more than happy, reach out, send us an email, inbox us, however, comment on this if you want to. Mm. But in any way, in any capacity, nothing will change unless something changes. The something that's going to change is you. And that's scary. Change feels uncertain. But if you want something to change, if you want your life to change, you need to be willing to change it. So mm. if it's not now, then when? And and for, for, those of you, for those of you going through it, our heart goes out to you. You're definitely not alone, even though you're going to feel like you're alone in this. Um, and that's why Ash and I are so passionate about bringing this free resource to you. It might sound like we're plugging these courses or whatever it is. That's not the intention of this. We're just bringing information to it. But our, our purpose behind this particular podcast, this program, this, this, this thing that we're, we're doing is to bring this free educational resource to people in an area where it takes a long time to see a psychologist. There are mm -hmm. a lot of people who are taking antidepressants and not really feeling the, you know, what they would hope from it. So, um, you know, our heart goes to you. We love you all. And I think on that note, Ash, we're going to wrap this one up Absolutely. and we'll catch you next week. And I will say, just to finish, Dave, you did say that, yes, we talk about the courses and that it's not our intention. We are providing so much free stuff. We're providing so much free value, but... If you do get to the point where you're ready, where you're ready to jump in and you're ready to deep dive in this and have your hand actually held, then reach out for that too, because that is what we specialize in. Thousand percent. Thousand percent. Absolutely. All right. Amazing show, Ash. We'll catch you next week. 
Bye-bye. See you later. Bye.